Good morning, everybody. Thank you for making me feel so welcomed. How many of you feel welcome today? I mean, this is a very welcoming church, and I uh, congratulate you for that. I do want to also thank Pastor Scott for the sacred privilege, this opportunity to minister God's word to you this day. And we'll be in Isaiah chapter 6 together. And I want what you want, and that is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ together. We want to make much of him, and we want to we see him for who he really is. So the title of the sermon this morning, Isaiah Saw the Lord. Now when Isaiah saw the Lord, he said in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, I saw the Lord. And it would be our purpose today that with the eyes of faith, by studying the scriptures together, we with the prophet Isaiah, we might also be able to say, I have seen the Lord today. The text begins really in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This I, this Isaiah in the text, he was of royal blood. According to tradition, he was a descendant of David, so he was related to the the king, who happens to be mentioned here, Uzziah. And Isaiah had a wife. She's called the prophetess in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. He also had at least two boys, and they had quite the names. The first one was Shear Yashuv. And the other boy was Maher Shalel Hashbaz. Say that ten times. <laughs> king Uzziah is also known as King Azariah. He's called Azariah in 2 Kings chapter 15, and he's called Uzziah here in Isaiah and also in the Chronicler's account in chapter 26 of 2 Chronicles. King Uzziah died in the year 740 or 739 B.C., so that pegs the very date or the year Uh, For our morning text, Isaiah chapter 6 to the year 740-739 B.C., right there in the middle of the 8th century. Uzziah reigned for a long time, over five decades, actually 52 years total to be exact. And the account in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 provides us with more details than we read in the king's account in 2 Kings chapter 15. But over in 2 Chronicles, we learn that Uzziah was a man full of energy. He oversaw the rebuilding of a lot down in the Gulf of Aqaba and made it a trading center. He conquered and then rebuilt Philistia down by the Mediterranean coast. He defeated the Arabs, and he subjugated and taxed the Ammonites over in what is today modern Jordan. So reading between the lines, we learned that he controlled the trade routes of that incense route and grew wealthy as a result. He was also an agriculturalist who had uh, many cattle, and he planted uh, many vineyards, so he was in the viniculture throughout his kingdom. He was also, by the way, an engineer, and he equipped his capital city of Jerusalem there in the little kingdom of Judea with some well-thought-out catapults and other special siege engines that were designed to shoot uh, projectiles and large arrows at the enemy, and he situated them along the battlements of his city. He was so energetic and such a leader and was so for so long that his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt And he was living out the truth of his name, Utsiah in Hebrew, which means the Lord, Yah, Utsiah, the Lord is my strength, my Uts. Unfortunately, though, as he grew and his accolades increased and his resume was lengthened, he became stronger and stronger, but his pride also increased, and he vainly, vainly attempted to usurp the priestly prerogative one day and went into the temple itself with an incense burner 
where he was accosted by the high priest Azariah together with 80 other priests of the rank and file, and they tried to withstand the king, to prevent him, and they warned him and rebuked him that this was not his place to offer incense in the temple sanctuary. And King Uzziah was enraged, and so the Bible says that with the firepan still in his hand, there he tried to offer the incense, and at that very moment the Lord struck him with a skin disease which broke out on his forehead, And the priests then wanted to rush him out of the temple because of that ritual impurity. But the text says that he himself hurried on his own volition because he knew that the Lord had afflicted him with leprosy. As a result, he reigned for the remaining 11 years of his life in a co-regency with his son Jotham. And then when he died, he was buried in a separate place in a cemetery. Now up here on the previous slide, you can see that on the right we have Rembrandt's rendition of King Uzziah. It's a classic, one of the Dutch masters, and he has something with his skin going on, and he's holding his hands there. I see him as marred and regretful, but the better for it. He's a wizened man as he looks back on his reign. When he did die, he was buried in the royal cemetery there in Jerusalem, but because of his skin disease, he was buried off in a separate place, not together with the other kings of Judah. I want you to fast forward with me. We've been in the 8th century B.C., 747-39. That's the date of Isaiah chapter 6. And now we come to the modern era. The year was 1931. And the famed Israeli archaeologist E.L. Sukenik discovered a re-internment funerary inscription from the second temple period, not from the first temple period, the temple that we read about here in Isaiah chapter 6, but the second temple period, the temple of Ezra that was completely redone by Herod the Great because in the first century B.C., Herod the Great ordered that all cemeteries be vacated from within the walls of Jerusalem except for those belonging to the kings of Judah. But he did want to relocate those remains. So Herod's workmen dug up the remains of the kings of Judah, including the remains of Uzziah or Uzziah, which had been separated, as I said, from those of the other kings. And then they reinterred them there in Jerusalem, and over his reburial plot, the workman placed this inscription, which you see on the slide, and it's written in Aramaized Hebrew, and I'll give you now the unauthorized Hartog translation. To here were brought the bones of Uzziah, Melech Yehuda, king of Judah, do not, or not to be opened. This is kind of nice because we have a little archaeological tie-in that goes right to our text here in Isaiah chapter 6. King Uzziah's death marked the end of an era. He oversaw what we call the Silver Age of Israelite history or Judean history. It was a period of greatness that was surpassed only by the Golden Age under his forebears of David and Solomon. And now back to the first verse of our text we read, in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple. I want for you now to use with me your sanctified imagination. I know that my translation, which is today the Holman Christian Standard Bible, mentions this robe filling the temple, but the footnote says literally seen. And I'd like to emphasize the literal reading of the Hebrew with you this morning. I know that on the slide we have an artistic rendition of what this might have looked like, but having searched the internet, I could not find an image that that really does justice to what's happening here in the text. Because I want for you to think with me, as you're standing there on the temple platform, 
with Isaiah, who was not a priest, so he's not in the temple. He's outside of the temple. And as he's thinking about his relative, King Uzziah, and his death, and the uncertainty that faces the nation with this transition in administration and with the rising threat of Assyria to the north, the Lord then peels back the curtains of heaven and blesses Isaiah with his beatific vision where he sees the Lord and he sees the seam of his robe filling the temple. Not to be sacrilegious at all, especially as we treat Isaiah chapter 6, the way we, we might modernly translate that, the cuff of his slacks, right? They filled the temple so that the walls were like to burst, kind of like a little toddler boy with too much bubble gum in his cheeks right there. And then going up from there, the eye follows up the robe itself, way, way up from the temple where there's just the hem, clear up to heaven where there's this throne, and on the throne the Lord is seated. And that, of course, is a vision of God. A vision wherein just the seam fills the temple, and way up high over all the earth there is our great sovereign Lord. And his sovereignty extends as far as his glory stretches, that is, filling the whole earth. Yes, King Uzziah had died. It would be the passing of the Silver Age of Judean history. But the Lord still sat enthroned above, and the seam of his robe was bulging out those walls of the overfilled tiny little temple in Jerusalem. The Lord of hosts is mentioned in our text. Now we have the actual proper name, the personal name of the Lord, capital O-L, capital O, capital R, capital E. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh of hosts, or as it's rendered by Eugene Patterson in his paraphrase, the message, and I like, I like this rendition, the Lord of angel armies, because he is the Lord of heaven's armies. And so Isaiah catches this glimpse, this vision of the Lord. And that's why he can say in the morning text, I saw the Lord. And I would like for us to see the Lord today also with the eyes of faith. The prophet had received his vision, and he himself now was standing on the temple platform in a position that in Latin is rendered Coram Deo. I know Isaiah did not speak Latin. And Coram Deo is not normally a phrase that we would use, but it is a theological phrase. It's a doctrinal phrase, and it means before God or in the presence of God or even at the face of God. Because Isaiah had a face-to-face encounter with the Lord of angel armies, did he not? And he realized that there was much in transition and there was much that was uncertain, yet he could see with his eyes, which we now see with the eyes of faith, as we study the scriptures together, he could see that God had not relinquished any of his sovereignty. In this election year, as we here in America, we face a time of transition. And as we exercise our civic rights and responsibilities, we must always remember not to put our trust in politicians, but to trust in the sovereign Lord of angel armies. We need to come face to face with God himself. And with the eyes of faith, we need to see how that he is enthroned forever, far above the earth. And then we will gladly submit to his sovereignty. Now we also go back to the text, and we'll pick it up here in verse 2, and we'll learn, second, 
from our biblical text this morning that the Lord is separated. Verse 2, seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And then verse 3, and one called to another, holy, holy, holy. And I have to say it again because one's calling to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There it is again. The Lord Yahweh, Jehovah of angel armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Isn't that awesome? It's it's awe-inspiring. The seraphim are special angelic beings. And the Hebrew word for seraph means a burning one. So the seraphs or seraphim in the plural, the I-M in Hebrew is like the S in English, refers to the burning ones. And we think that maybe they have some kind of a, a radiance, like a flaming, burning look to them. But even though they are the seraphim, the burning ones, when compared to the brilliance of the Lord's visible glory, it forces them to take two of their wings and they cover their eyes, right? And then with two other wings, they cover their feet in humility and in a posture of submission. If feet here is used euphemistically, it means that they're covering all that should be covered in modesty before our thrice holy God. And then surely with the two remaining wings, they fly about and they do our sovereign God's will. Holy, holy, holy was that seraphic song. Holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew word for holy carries with it the big idea of separateness because God is completely set apart. There is no one, none like him. There's no pollution in him. There's nothing unrighteous, nothing sinful, nothing profane. Nothing could ever contaminate him. There's absolutely, positively nothing wrong with him. And although he is a God who is certainly near, he's an imminent God. He is also a God who is far above all. He is a transcendent God. He is holy, holy, holy. The Latin phrase, another Latin phrase today. This is like intro to linguistics, I'm sorry to say. That sometimes we use when we study a literary passage is omne trium perfectum which reminds us that everything that comes in threes is perfect or complete. Because a set of three has this sense of completeness, of completion. So holy, holy, holy is a responsive, angelic, antiphonal singing or ringing back and forth as it's, as it's echoing there in the throne room of heaven. And it's proclaiming the completeness, the perfection, without any limitation, the sanctified otherness of our great God. This is not only an Old Testament truth, it is also a New Testament truth. If you were to jump ahead to the final book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, there we are told that the relentless mantra of the four living creatures, each with six wings, proclaims throughout heaven's hallowed halls, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. We might put it this way, sanctified, sanctified, sanctified is the Lord of the heavenly host. Separate, separate, separate is Yahweh of angel armies and his glory fills the whole earth. Again, here we see the theological concept of Koram Deo, in the presence of God. It's clearly taught here. This idea of standing before the Lord, living face to face in his presence. 
God's people, not just the prophet Isaiah, but God's people in this dispensation, we too are supposed to be aware moment by moment, not only of God's sovereignty, but also to be aware of his separateness. Every day we are to live life coram Deo in the presence of our God. There is to be no division between the secular and the sacred. R.C. Sproul, who is an American theologian, writes about living coram Deo that if you are a steelmaker or an attorney or a homemaker, you need to act every bit, he puts it, as religiously as a soul-winning evangelist who fulfills his vocation. He continues, integrity is found where men and women live their lives in a pattern of consistency. It is a pattern that functions the same basic way in church and out of church. It is a life that is open before God. It is a life in which all that is done is done as to the Lord. It is a life lived by principle, not by expediency, by humility before God, not defiance. It is a life lived under the tutelage of conscience that is held captive by the word of God. So, ending the quotation, to bring it front and center to where we are this morning in our sermon, to live coram Deo means to live under the Lord's sovereignty, but it also means to live with an awareness of our own sinfulness. And this comes about because we live coram Deo. We live in the light of his thrice-told holiness. Again, this is a New Testament truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, and it's actually written three times in the book of Leviticus, chapters 11, 19, and 20, be holy because the Lord says, I am holy. And later in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, and these are words that are spoken to the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we can see how that Isaiah responded when he was standing there coram Deo, when he was aware of God's presence as we now return to our text. I'm going to pick it up now in verses 4 and continue reading on through verse 5. Verse 4, the foundations of the doorways shook. I have to read that again. I kind of get into a, a rhythm, but I need to change that rhythm. I wish I had a rich bass voice. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. That's the Shekinah, the Shekinah manifestation of the presence of God, that clouded presence. Then I said, and here are the words of the prophet who saw the Lord. Woe is me. I am ruined. Or literally in the Hebrew, I am silenced. I think that's why the Lord then later touches his mouth. I am silenced. What can he say? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of angel armies. Standing coram Deo, Isaiah sensed his own sinfulness. He was overwhelmed with awe in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. The only thing for this prophet to say, this prophet of royal blood and prestige and position, 
as he stood there before our holy, sovereign God of angel armies was to confess his own unworthiness. Do any of you at all enjoy painting walls inside a house? Because I, I don't. I tried once and it was an utter failure. If you've ever watched professional painters paint, they'll bring in banks of super bright lights. Have you seen that? So while they're painting, they have the light showing the quality of their work, and so if there are imperfections, they'll see them right away. That's a great illustration for what it means to live Coram Deo. This brings us right away to 1 John chapter 1 and verses 5 through 9, where the Apostle John says that God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. But if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And the way the Christian life works is after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and I'll have more to say about that in just a moment, but the moment that you are born again, the moment that you're forgiven and gifted with eternal life, you take a first step into that light of God's presence. You begin this journey of Coram Deo. And the light of his presence casts shadows on your sin, and you realize there are things I'm doing wrong that I didn't even know that they were wrong before. And then you confess that sin, and our God is so loving and gracious that he forgives you of all of your sin. It's the just thing to do because of what Jesus did by paying the penalty for our sin, and you take one more step closer into the light of his presence, and then he'll reveal even more that needs to be changed in your life. This is a wonderful thing to be able to have fellowship with a thrice holy God. Well, how is that even possible? It's made possible because of Jesus Christ. Living before the face of God, we see our sin problem in all of its horrendous clarity. And then, and I have to say this with the biggest smile that I can stretch across my face, and it's not a put-on at all, and then... God solves our sin problem with his grace. What does it say in verse 6? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had, that he had taken from the altar with tongs. Verse 7. He touched my mouth with it and said, and this is the angel speaking, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. For sake of time, I need to shorthand this and bring it right down to where we are today, and I need to tell you that for us today, the altar is the cross, and our substitutionary sacrifice is the Son of God himself, or to put it another way, Jesus, who as we just finished singing is everything that we need, Jesus is our glowing coal. He cleanses us from all sin. When we trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins, God the Father removes from us the penalty that we deserve for our wickedness because Jesus fully has satisfied our Father's righteous, holy demands that we justly deserve, the punishment that we deserve in hell, Jesus endured on the cross in our place. That is amazing. This is good news. No, it's great news. So before the, before the Lord, we sense our own sinfulness. 
And then from the Lord, we receive his grace through Jesus. I have to ask you a question. Have you trusted in Jesus alone for salvation? Have you asked him to be your substitute? Do you look to him as the one who paid the penalty for your sin? Have you been cleansed by the cross, wiped clean by the shed blood of Jesus Christ? And if your answer is no, then I would urge you to look to Jesus right now, right where you're seated, and by faith believe that he died in your place, bore your punishment, that he was raised from the dead three days later, and that today from heaven's throne he offers you forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life and the indwelling of his spirit. Will you trust in Christ today for your salvation? Because in him alone we find atonement for our sins, cleansing for his service, and a message of salvation to share with others. We learn third, back in our text, now in verse 8, we learn that the Lord is not only sovereign and that he is separated, but also that the Lord sends. It says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so after he's been cleansed, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. We have seen from today's passage that God is sovereign and separate, and now we see that he is ascending God. He sends his people out into the world with his message. Earlier this summer, I heard a lecture on a CD by a pastor from Cambridge, England. His name is Ian Hamilton, and it was a blessing. He thought maybe Isaiah had a a sin problem with his speech, and that's possible. He may be right. I think instead, though, that more likely the touching of the coal to the lips, to the mouth, is is a word picture. I think it happened, literally, but it's to signify, the, the big word is a synecdoche. It's a kind of a metonymy. It's a, it's a figure of speech where the part represents the whole. So his mouth represents the totality of the prophetic ministry because the prophet speaks with his mouth. So just like the finish line represents a race, the mouth represents the prophet. And when the Lord sanctified his mouth, the Lord was sanctifying his ministry. The Lord was commissioning him in ministry. Moses received his commission for service while he was standing feet unshod, coram deo, there at the burning bush on the mountain of commandment. Ezekiel, another one, received his commission while he was standing Coram Deo at the Kabar Canal in Babylon as the throne of God was rushing up to him on that on those wheels within a wheels, very dramatic fashion, that throne chariot of God. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet of royal blood receives his commission while he is standing Coram Deo on the temple platform in Jerusalem near the altar of burnt offerings where the atonement was made for Israel's sins and then from that altar, then this burning coal is put to his mouth. So in his commissioning service, Isaiah learned that the Lord was sending him out to the people of Judah. Now here's, here's maybe the surprise. The people of Judah, the Lord goes on to say, would not, would not respond to his prophetic message, even though his lips, and by extension I'm arguing his entire ministry, had been sanctified. Ultimately, the people of Judah would reject the prophetic message 
and they would be taken away into exile, and their kingdom would be destroyed. But the Lord, in his mercy, would preserve a holy remnant, which is portrayed at the end of the chapter as a mere stump that remains after a mighty oak is felled. So now reading through some of the verses here in Isaiah chapter 6 from 9 to the end, verse 9, And he, the Lord, replies after Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. Go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Dull the minds of these people, deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears and hear with their ears. I'm sorry. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Then I said, until when, Lord? And he replied, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, houses are without people, the land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away that is into captivity, leaving great emptiness in the land. The last verse, verse 13. Though a tenth will remain, this is the remnant, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed, the remnant, is the stump. So I want you to notice with me that as Isaiah stood Coram Deo, he did not negotiate with God concerning the future results of his ministry. All he said was, here I am, send me. He did not dictate the terms of his surrender. He delivered over the blank check of his life to the Lord. According to an ancient rabbinic tradition, Isaiah was executed by his own grandson through his daughter. King Manasseh was his grandson. And because Isaiah preached and in the end, the nation of Israel would be like a stump. Ironically, King Manasseh, Isaiah's grandson, ordered his men to put the prophet Isaiah in a hollowed out log. And then with a wood saw, they cut him through. That's, that's probably referred to in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 37 in the New Testament. Sawn asunder. Now, beloved, that is ministry expectation that are low in the extreme. I know that we live in uncertain times, and I know that we are facing the transition of leadership in our country, and I know that there are rising enemies on every side, both domestic and abroad. I know that the moral fabric of our society appears to be fraying. But, Coram Deo, we are overwhelmed, not with our circumstances, but by God's ultimate sovereignty. And we are undone by his separateness. His holiness points out our unworthiness. And then we respond to his grace. We yield ourselves after experiencing his grace. And we yield ourselves every day anew to his service. We remember that we are to be a people for his possession so that we might proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all the while, the Lord of angel armies not once promises us fantastic results for our ministry efforts. He only promises his presence and his power, and he promises us that ultimate victorious outcome that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Our Savior himself faced opposition, did he not, when he ministered here on the earth. So why should we be surprised if we too face opposition in the world in which we live? In fact, the Apostle John over in the New Testament and in chapter 12 of that fourth gospel, John chapter 12 and verse 40, the apostle John writes that 
the people did not believe Jesus' message because God, according to Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, the morning text, God had blinded their eyes. I had misread that earlier, so I have a second opportunity to say it correctly. God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. So Jesus had resistance to his ministry. We shouldn't be surprised when we face obstacles in ours. And then we learn something utterly fantastic because John continues there in chapter 12 and the first part of verse 41, Isaiah said these things. He said them in which chapter? Chapter 6. Isaiah said these things because he, Isaiah, saw him, saw his glory. Whose glory? Jesus' glory, and spoke about him there in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me say this again. In Isaiah chapter 6, John tells us that Isaiah the prophet standing Coram Deo had a vision of the pre-incarnate, glorious second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That vision for Isaiah would fortify him for a lifetime of ministry, even in spite of hardship. And the same holds true for us when we see the glory of God, when we are face-to-face by faith with Jesus, we are also fortified for ministry and we see his glory. Not only the glory of God on the mountain of commandment and here in the temple of Jerusalem and up above to the holy place in heaven, the throne room of God, not only on the mountain of transfiguration or by faith looking forward to the future glorious return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Oh, that'll be glorious. But we also see the glory of God in the face of Jesus when Jesus was weary and he was asleep in the boat or when he was hungry, right? Or when he, when he gasped through those parched lips as he was hanging on the cross, I thirst, and said then later exultantly, it is finished. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And as we spend time in the word of God and see the glory of God and grow ever closer to the Son of God, we are fortified in our service to him. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Here am I, Lord. Send me. All right, now there's a picture on the screen, and I want you to see the fellow who's second from the right. His name is William Borden. He was actually uh, born just down the road in the, the city of Chicago. You may have heard of Chicago here. And he came into a home of affluence and uh, of wealth. Not the Borden family with the, the evaporated milk, but a different Borden family. His father had made the family fortune in silver mining in Colorado. Shortly after uh, his mother uh, had come to Chicago, she began to attend what is today called the Moody Church. And then she became a believer, a true believer in Jesus. And then she brought her son William to church. And then soon William responded to the gospel. And it was preached at that time by Dr. R.A. Torrey. And William grew in his faith. He was baptized. He went off to Yale University. You see his picture there in his graduating class. So he was a smart fellow and a rich fellow. And then from there he went off to Princeton Seminary in order to become a missionary to the Muslims in inland China. And this book tells his story. Borden of Yale, 09, because he graduated from Yale in 1909. This meant that William Borden had said at some point in his life 
yes to the Lord of angel armies. Here I am, send me. And he had chosen a life path that would require learning two of the most difficult languages in all the world, Arabic to reach the Muslims and Chinese to reach the Muslims who are living in inland China, south of what is modern-day Mongolia. So his first stop then, after graduating from seminary as a 24-year-old, was Cairo, Egypt, where he set about to learn Arabic. And by the way, the book explains right away he was already evangelizing. It's amazing. It's a phenomenal book. But soon after his arrival in Cairo, he contracted a painful disease called cerebral meningitis. And then after a prolonged period of suffering, he died in Cairo, age of 25, just hours on the same day before his mother arrived in Cairo to help take care of him in his pained state. So here we have William Borden. And he died in Egypt at the age of 25, never having made it to China. Borden bequeathed his estate, which at the time was $1 million, to the China Inland Mission. And his physical remains were buried in the American Cemetery in Cairo. So far, so far from his Chicago home and so well short of his missionary goals in China. And this is what's written on the marker of his grave. A man in Christ. He arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affection with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints in honor, preferring others. Apart from faith in Christ, and for our sermonic purposes today, apart from living Coram Deo, by faith seeing Jesus and his glory, there is no explanation for such a life. The young man, William Borden, saw with the eyes of faith what Isaiah had seen in his temple vision. Borden saw Jesus Christ by faith, and Borden lived by faith in his presence. And as a result of his short-lived life, many others then, having read this book and heard his story, entered into missionary service so that the gospel was carried in strength to Islamic China. Now, I invite you, each one of you today, I invite you, by faith, I encourage you to see the Lord Jesus, to see him holy, 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 high and exalted. I challenge you to sit now under his sovereignty, to live now in response to his holiness, to surrender yourself as a believer into his service no questions asked. After his death, his Bible was given to his mother, and his mother was paging through it, and she found a date that Borden had scribbled down shortly after he had renounced his family's fortune in order to enter the work of a missionary, and by that date he had written the little phrase, no reserve. And then later on in his Bible, he wrote a different date, and that was the date on which his father had told him that if he did not desist, and if he continued with his ministry aspirations, he would never be able to work in the family business. And next to that date, he wrote, no retreat. And finally, shortly before he died in Egypt, far, as I said, from his Chicago home and well short of the mission field in China, while he was suffering in the agony of cerebral meningitis, Borden added the phrase, no regrets. Beloved, there is no possible way 
to explain this kind of a life other than it was a life that was lived Coram Deo. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. And so by faith today we see here at Harvest New Beginnings, we see the sovereignty of God. We listen and we hear with the ears of faith the seraphs as they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of angel armies. And then with the prophet we say, I saw the Lord. And then in our heart of hearts we whisper it out and we tell Jesus right here, right now, here I am. Send me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and given us your spirit. And we thank you that today you have given us a new vision of your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. Father God, I pray especially for those who are here today and have still, they still have not trusted in Jesus for salvation. In your presence, we see our sinfulness, but we also, Father, we see your grace. And I pray for our friends that they would reach out in faith and they would trust in Jesus and receive his salvation. Many of us are believers, Lord, and now we're encouraged to serve you with gladness and without any reserve in these coming months as these ministries are gearing up here in this church, in this assembly. Fortify your people that we might work hard with joy and gladness, knowing that indeed through us you will build your church. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.